Hey there. If you've been enjoying the Unchained Binge podcast, you should know that this podcast, like everything else we do here at the Escape Collective, is member-funded. That means we're funded by, well, you, if you're already a member. And if you're not, we hope you'll think about becoming one. You can head on over to escapecollective.com join to sign up and become part of a pretty awesome community. It's a community that supports this podcast and the others on the Escape Collective podcast network, as well as everything that we write about bikes and more over on the escapecollective.com website. It's also a community with a very active Discord channel where we sometimes do live recordings of podcasts, by the way. In other words, there are lots of reasons to sign up. Our monthly memberships start at $11.99 USD, or you can save 30% by signing up annually. We'd love to have you as a member. And again, you can head over to escapecollective.com join to find out more and sign up. This is the Unchained Binge Podcast. I'm Kaylee Fretz. We're going to go deep on Netflix's new Tour de France docuseries, Unchained. Today is episode five, Breakneck Speed. In today's episode, we get a lesson in descending from Tom Pidcock. We warm up to a rider in the twilight of his career. And we confirm that Nielsen Palace had a great breakfast. Let's get to it. Hi, crew. Episode five. I enjoyed this one. Joining me today, Kit Nicholson. How are you, Kit? I'm all right, thank you. Finally warm. Oh, finally warm. That's good. <laughs> and Johnny Long, welcome back. Hello. Happy to be back after a couple of rest episodes off. And Abby Mickey. How are you, Abby? Hello. I'm great. So, episode five. Episode episode five was was EF heavy. Uh, and Ineos heavy, and, and those are the two teams that this this particular episode focused on. And I, I do think that it is interesting to note that they pick these two to sit next to each other. Uh, and in fact, they have only run EF kind of next to a juggernaut, really. And it's it's almost it, it seems purposeful to me to to make EF feel like this little underdog little guy. Uh, Jonathan Vodder certainly plays that up both in the earlier episodes and in this episode. Do we think that that is effective? Like, do you have a, a sense of, do you want to root for for EF after the way that they're portrayed in, in both the earlier episode and episode five? I don't know if, I, if it makes me want to root for them, but I do find it interesting that they made such a big deal out of the team on the first stage winning a stage. Other, otherwise, the team would collapse and all this. And then... Magnus Court won a stage in between the first episode and this episode, and they it was like a snippet. It was like a half a second of like, even though Magnus won a stage, but they didn't show that at all, which is which is fascinating because we had like Magnus off the front solo, well, solo on the second stage, and then with one other guy on the third stage, like making a huge deal out of being off off the front the entire race and then he won a stage later i feel like that's a cool storyline but they just completely glossed over everything magnus court and just mentioned him like in passing maybe he was just incredibly sweary in any of the talking heads that they had to do and they couldn't use any of it because i think he's a bit of a character isn't he 
Years Maybe ago, they didn't yeah. know what to do with him. Um, but yeah, I totally agree. And we mentioned it in the Grand Apart episodes when his storyline was maybe a little bit a little bit more enigmatic for the non-cyclist or the anyone who's unfamiliar with uh, how bike races work and breakaways and that sort of thing. But a Dane in the Grand Apart and then the only stage winner for EF. Yeah, it seemed like a very strange uh, choice. But then again, I suppose they were trying to fit a different storyline in this instance. I think if you're a complete cycling novice and have no idea and they're trying to sell you EF as the underdog but then the first thing you see or the thing you see quite a lot is them all walking around in like palace t-shirts which are, is like a streetwear brand where white logo t-shirts cost like 60 pounds or whatever it's like where, and, and, you've, and then you've got Jonathan Waters on the but on the bus like shouting prime time in like a very sort of American bravado way which doesn't isn't like doesn't fit an underdog thing it's quite disconcerting maybe and and like when they seem to be and like it just all looks like their kits are like the like maybe to the outside the coolest even if they're divisive like within the cycling world and it just it, for me it doesn't really work like that I don't know yeah this isn't really a comment on what on, on the the race or the storyline but I'd forgotten how bizarre those pink shorts and what it looks like a fisherman's vest those are those outfits that they're all wearing. I've forgotten how funny they look, um, but that's not really a <laughs> not really a relevant comment. Well, the other bit that that keeps coming up is this is this notion that they're going to like lose all their sponsors if they don't win a stage of the Tour de France. Which one they do, as you said, Abby, they win a stage of the Tour de France even if it's completely uncovered within this actual show. But two, it's also nonsense. Like it's complete nonsense. I mean, that that team is owned by education first which is the sort of big travel and education company most teams are owned by somebody else they're owned by an individual and they bring on sponsors in this case the the primary sponsor is the owner of the license and the owner of the team so unless they just decided to shut it down like they don't actually have that that sort of financial pressure that that is sort of underpinning a lot of the narrative is is completely false uh not to say that like that team couldn't fold if something bad happened or if they really did have a terrible couple of years. But the the reality of the, of the sort of like tie between a result at this Tour de France and like continue continuation of the team itself, that's bogus. It's completely bogus. Also, it goes in contrast to kind of what the message that's been coming out of the team in the past couple of years as we've seen like Lachlan Morton go and do his like alternative calendar and like make the whole pitch that, you know, bike racing is more than about winning and it's about sort of the journey and that that's kind of been their pivot as well with being the fun team because I guess being fun is something you can almost guarantee whereas winning isn't and that maybe makes them if maybe it doesn't make them more secure but it at least makes them one of the more visible teams which is as close as you can get to you know a guarantee that you're going to survive from ET. I mean catching people up to speed who maybe don't follow cycling as, as closely and have just watched the series Yamo Visma are current they've Yumbo as a title sponsor are pulling out after 2024 and then Gorillas, the food delivery app have also pulled out suddenly losing them 5 million euros in sponsorship so even for a team that wins all the time that was no guarantee for, for them to be commercially viable as Jonathan Waters was talking about So the episode opens up with a lot of Ineos as well like I said that this episode is, the, is those two teams 
and they're trying to contrast them both in terms of kind of the management style and the wealth behind them uh, the resources behind them as well as there's sort of like a there's a rider against rider contrast right that 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 pops up in the latter half of the of the episode when we when we literally have an ef rider versus an Enios rider duking it out however briefly <laughs> on on alp Duez. and it opens up with a lot of stuff about tom pidcock and i think that he's an interesting rider to have chosen to be kind of like the other main character at Ineos. So it's him and Garrett Thomas are, are essentially the two main characters at Ineos. I think he's an interesting character to have chosen because he actually does kind of, he runs counter to the narrative that Ineos is this, is this behemoth, this sort of like faceless robotic behemoth, right? Cause he's actually, I think he's quite charming in this episode. Like he, he's, he's a bit, I don't know. He's a bit rough around the edges, right? So, but he, but he, he feels quite honest in that way to me. I mean, I think it definitely made me like Pidcock more seeing him in this way, um, like a little bit more up close. But yeah, the once again, I feel like they've they've made weird choices with the character that he plays and his role in the show. Although I think when it comes to this stage, like there was no one else that they could have possibly focused on because of the style in which he won it. And I could watch him descend for eternity and be happy <laughs> with the with that loop playing in front of my eyes. Uh, he's just a beautiful on a bike. Like he, it's just, yeah, I can't, it's just amazing. And he's like that in every discipline. Like I, I I'm glad that they they kind of did show him as a multidiscipline athlete who's pretty new to the road because that that is how he is, except that he's still, it's not like he's an underdog in any sense of the term um, or any kind of like newbie when it comes to riding a bike. So a couple like, still a couple weird things, but I think, yeah, I don't know. I, I liked the the getting to know Pidcock a little bit better in this episode. I feel like I don't know him at all as a writer. I don't know if it's because he's pretty, like, he, he he's said some things or, like, done some things on social media that it's like, okay, he seems like he's just really cocky and kind of obnoxious, and I don't have any interest in following him as an athlete. But this made me think maybe that's not the case. I think the the other characters that surrounded him did him a lot of favors as well, um, and kind of by, well, in, indirectly, um, and it's partly just that I don't know. It's, they I found that the general mood in this episode is a little bit grumpy, um, and I don't know if that's necessarily true or if it's just that all those people, Charlie Wood, Megalia, Steve Cummings, Garen Thomas. You know, they're not boring people necessarily, but their voices are quite, uh, I don't know, they're, they're quite, it's quite monotonous. <laughs> and um, and so it was all very um, slow paced and we're just going to do this or I'm not sure this is a good idea. Or, Even when Pidcock was descending, it was like, oh. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> or when, when Wigelia said about Paulus's attack, I'm not sure that this is a good idea. It was just kind of... Yeah, that that was one of the standout moments for me of the episode. It's like, oh, these guys just, I don't know, they need a Lucasade or a Red Bull. Um, and but then and then you've got Pidcock, who like he is um, a bit coarse, um, 
but he's both confident and almost in a way experimenting um in his own skills he knows obviously how to descend um better than anyone um and he throws himself off the mountain but uh he's also a bit like Garant thomas at the other end of the scale or at the end of the other end of the age scale um media training doesn't seem to feature necessarily for him he just says what he wants i, I felt it was a much better representation of like the British flavour within the peloton to see this side of them where they're not like stuck up in front of the cameras like so much better than the sort of Bradley Wiggins era flag waving sort of all playing up to stereotypes like Charlie Wigalius just like giving sort of an understated reaction is just so much more real but what was interesting I thought was that for the first time we saw like a bit of an edge to Geraint Thomas when when he was asked his opinion of what Pigcock uh, could like be allowed to do on the outdoor stage, and you, for the first, because you've never really seen Garant Thomas like defend his corner publicly as like a leader. Because like, when he won the tour, it was like he was just in, he ended up in yellow, and even though we know internally he has had to like defend his corner as leader and like argue for contracts and status or whatever, but he, but it was also like he was almost reluctant to do it at the same time. Like it was, it was, it was cool to see that, and then you also saw Pigcock on the other hand. A guy who, in front of the press, is always like super confident in his own abilities and will defend like his like his cachet. And then he, when he was asked what he thought he could do on the stage, he was like he was like looking at the profile and was like, I don't know, what, I don't know what's gonna happen, and I don't know what to do. And they're like, well, maybe you could go in the break. And he's like, well, I don't know, that's gonna be hard. Like that, I think that that was like really, it was really great insight. And I feel like the further we get into the series, like with the Grand on stage, we got great insight if you'd already watched the race and it added more and it was the same with this one because you actually saw more about who who the riders are when then when they're not that they they know they were being watched but it's like they're more comfortable with showing actually what they what they think i think it also helps that they know that this is coming out months and months and months later right like (laughs) not not, nothing nothing they say in real time like they don't say anything tactical in real time right like we can ask them the exact same question and we're gonna get a very different answer because they know that we're going to publish it that night and their competitors are going to see it the next morning. And in this case, they know that it's whatever they say is, is relevant, right. From a tactical perspective. So I, I do think that actually kind of, that, that, that helps. It, it allows them to get more out of these riders than, than we can in, in, in the moment. Right. The kind of the contrast between the kind of young gun and the old man, I thought was, was quite interesting. Uh, the old man, of course, being roughly my age, and, and so I don't I don't love the portrayal of, of of you know headed imminently for the grave or anything like that. But uh, I mean, Garrett Thomas is near the near the he as he says twilight of his career. He knows it. And the other kind of angle that came along with that was this internal need for him to kind of prove people wrong that was played up quite dramatically. Did we buy that? Do we buy the sort of uh, members of the press are mentioned by him? Uh, not by name, but just sort of us as a group, right? And one of the things he says is, is that, you know, <laughs> that we won't take some of the things he's doing well. The press didn't really believe in him ahead of the race. You know, if I look back at like the previews that were written, everyone's kind of got him like, ah, maybe he can pull a top five. Maybe he can do a decent ride, but he's not a contender. Right. And the way that this is framed is certainly that that he wanted to show people once and for all that, no, in fact, he he is a contender and he was a contender 
at last year's story. Do we buy that? that Remembering back to that time, yeah, I, I definitely bought it at the time, and I think it was, uh, I think it was portrayed fairly. I think, in fact, I think it was almost downplayed from what I remember the reality. Well, what the reality that was painted at the time. Um, you know, he went to the. They started the year with a different leader in Egan Bernal, and then they had to completely rejig their plans. Um, and I don't think Pidcott was originally meant to go to the tour that soon. Um, but uh, so it was a completely different Ineos to what it had been six months earlier. Um, and he was, an, and he, he didn't even have a leadership role when he went to the Tour de Suisse, if I remember correctly. And then he won the thing. So he was, he was proving himself for the for the months running up to the Tour. Um, so yeah, I, I, I bought it. Um, and I, in fact, maybe they didn't quite ham it up enough. I mean, the thing with him being taken as a, like seriously as a contender, I mean, he was, it was, he was never in the two horse race between Vingo and, and Pogaccia. Like I remember we were writing articles of like Geraint Thomas is even more third or is the most third he has ever been. Um, <laughs> but what had what preceded the the tour in the winter was a contract uh, renegotiation between Thomas and Dineos. And basically he was, you know, saying he was worth x amount or you know they maybe wanted to squeeze the contract a bit more as he because the contract he had before was post tour where you obviously get a huge bump because you've just won the biggest bike race and so i think there was he a lot of the conversation was more that he was doubted by the upper management in, in neos that he was capable of a result and i think him coming third of the tour was a confirmation that he did everything he he could outside of you know that those two who are sort of untouchable that he was still worth the the status of being a huge rider within within the peloton i wonder if that i will actually i can almost guarantee that that contract as a result of the way that the negotiations played out i can almost guarantee that contract has quite a lot of bonus structure in it <laughs> and i i would imagine he did pretty well out of getting onto the podium at at the tour de france because yeah if there was if there was debate over sort of where he stood uh, in terms of his, you know, decline from from a tour winner, that would be a, that would be the way that I would structure it anyway, is, well, okay, if I prove that I can do it, then I get the reward, and if I don't, then you were right, and, you know, my salary goes down, right? My guess is that's the way that it was, it was put together. Speaking of another, well, speaking of old men, um, I thought the portrayal of Rigoberto Uran was interesting in this episode. Um, and the most interesting part being what he, how he described himself, which uh, was, um, if I've got the right piece of paper, um, he, he said, my job on the team is to bring joy, um, to make the guys happy. It's even and, better when uh, you say it. For some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, cause he, he, that, and that's basically all he does in the episode because he then, as we know, he had some bad luck and it was over to Paulus. Um, so he has this kind of quite sweet mentor moment um, and then hands over to the young guys. Do you think- I assumed it was just, I assumed it was just like a joke that got lost in translation. translation. Like he's, he's the South American Garant Thomas who like makes dad jokes, but we just didn't, we didn't get it. I don't know. <laughs> My Spanish isn't good enough to to interview Rigoberto Iran, but I have sort of been near interviews with him with Spanish speakers uh, and got a decent sense for kind of who he is as, as a personality. And I, I do, I it wouldn't surprise me if he actually genuinely does see his 
his role in that way these days. Uh, I mean, he's always been kind of a bit of a prankster and a, and a um, yeah, a jovial personality on the on the team bus. Framing him as sort of like this father figure, which is the, what Jonathan Vodders did throughout the throughout that segment. And then kind of turning around and well, he had all these issues and they're forced to look to the next generation. Uh, was, do we, do, do, was that intentional? I mean, was the intent, was the intent to tell two similar stories with two, with these two teams? So we've got the elder statesman on both, right? And then the young guy on both. So we've got Garen Thomas at Ineos and Pidcock. And then we've got Rigoberto Ron and Palace. Is was that the framing of this whole episode? And then basically Rigo ended up, you know, not not, well, not doing anything because he crashed and had a bunch of bad luck. Uh, or am I just reading too far into that? No, I think that's bang on. I think that's absolutely what they were aiming for. You know, the kind of passing the mantle on to the next generation. Although it's obviously it's slightly different with Ineos, but in this episode it is very much um, over to Pidcock. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's absolutely what they were intending on. It's that mirror that, um, that we had in episode uh, episode one with the Bissiger versus Sudal Quickstep uh, mm. time trial day. Do you reckon it's too much of a stretch to say that it was like sort of a search for for meaning for both the teams? Like, you know, in the Drive to Survive series where they follow like, the mid-pack teams who like are trying to like gather up some semblance of like coming 10th in in a race as being like a huge success like you have Ineos who when they were they in the show they highlight how they won seven out of eight tours de France with Sky and now they haven't won in three years so they're trying to figure out what they're all about and then with EF like with the relatively smaller budget they're they're winning a stage and that's great but then they're also trying to figure out what what they're about too and maybe that's where the focus on like just getting to the next year comes through because it gives that's then considered a success, I guess, if they just keep the team going. I don't know. No, I think that's spot on. I think that's, that's yeah, absolutely what they were going for. And I think that that's a means of building empathy for these two teams as well, is, is you know, kind of understanding where they've come from, where they're trying to go to, or the fact that they don't really know where they're trying to go to yet. I do think that that's, a, that's an empathy-building technique on this. What were some of the other kind of cues in this one? Like, where did the music stand? I thought the music did a lot of work in this episode, but I think that's partly because the voices were quite hard to get excited about. <laughs> and I don't mean that, I don't dislike these people, but I did find the, the whole thing a little bit muted. So the music, I think there was a, there was a lot of music happening. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be a downer on these, <laughs> on these blokes with the monotonous British accents, but it was there. And I can say it because I'm British. <laughs> I also just think though that the like having outdoors with all the fans and stuff is enough of like uh, you don't want to take away from that too much. And like also the pig like just to go back to the pigcock descending like when he like just went past Froome, who's like a four-time winner, just like that was there was it was I don't want to say embarrassing for Froome because obviously he's like after his big crash probably not that much of a fan of descending as maybe he used to be if he ever was but just like showing that it was so good to like really visually be able to see the difference like even if you had no idea what it's like going down going down that descent in in terms of the music I really like the opening like loved the me too the opening music was like it was like some kind of like horror movie music almost with like a ticking clock. It was very cinematic. Introduced Ineos and it felt really like spot on 
for me. <laughs> yeah, like a kind of anti-hero theme. Mm. They should have played Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys think about Pigcock's framing as a domestique? Because that is just like, maybe he like gets a few bottles, but he's not a domestique at all. Like, I thought that was kind of weird. He and I don't know why they did he that. Was, he was at the tour as a domestique. It was his but first like, tour. Theory. But you know, it's it's like the whole thing where yeah. it's like he went to get experience. I yeah, I don't know. I don't think that's such a stretch, um, especially when you think about even just five years ago. If you were Pitcock's age in your second year in the peloton or first year in the peloton, you were getting bottles every single day, and there wouldn't even be a discussion with the DS and on the massage table as to whether you might even be able to get in the breakaway. I mean, there might be that, but it, or you'd just be told you're going to try and get in the breakaway. The way that cycling has changed uh, in the recent years with the younger winners has meant that this apprenticeship doesn't happen anymore. And then again, I can't like like you say, I can't really imagine Pidcock doing an awful lot of um, bottle carrying. But even Bernal was doing bottle carrying last week at the Dauphiné, and he was in he was uh, you know fighting for top 15, 20 places on stages. Um, I yeah, I, I think to call him a domestique in the traditional sense of the term is yeah, I agree that that's a bit of a reach but I don't think he wasn't meant to be playing a team role well and then we get a bit of the same sort of of kind of conflict tension definitely not dialed up as much by the edit as on the Yumbo side right like fundamentally we have a very similar thing where you have one rider who is going for the GC and the overall, and you have another rider who is absolutely capable of winning stages, and you have this tension between the two. And we do actually get a bit of a bit of that in this episode. It's not played up in the same way that it is played up with Yumbo, sort of across the whole series, but it is mentioned, and there is sort of like, like you said, Johnny, we get this sort of we get pushback from Garrett Thomas, which is something that we don't haven't seen a whole lot of in public, and then we also get push from. Pidcock saying like like no I would like to go to go do this so yeah that 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 positions him in this weird in this weird place where he is technically a domestique and I don't think that the show really kind of adequately explains what that means and what that requires and that may be why some of the drama around like Wout van Aert just doesn't it probably doesn't make as much sense if you don't truly understand cycling but in this case, they really don't explain it other than like a couple quick shots of him getting bottles. They don't explain how important those roles are. And so the, the sort of the tension there maybe is a little bit a little bit lost. I mean, my read on that stage, particularly as it, uh, I mean, the difference with Wout van Aert is that he would have targeted the stages that he went for long before the race. And this felt a bit more ad hoc, almost like, and, and we also had that interview with Pidcock where he said, I'm at my first Tour de France and I'm not really enjoying it. So it almost seemed to me like they were buying his loyalty for the rest of the race mm. um, by sending him up the road to go after a stage one of his own. Because he was properly moody. At least that's how he was painted in that, uh, what I mean, I assume it was a rest day interview. And I understand it. And we saw a lot of, he gave some great sound bites during the race of, you know, Jumbo Visma doing crazy, crazy stuff. Um, so... Yeah, that, I think that that's my read on it. Is it was a bit more, a bit more of a sort of inspired move, maybe by Cummings, that maybe Garrett Thomas had a little bit to do with, because you know this guy's a businessman as well as a bike racer. He's he knows what he knows how to sell a story. So um, yeah, I don't know. 
what about the Pidcock line where he's kind of bitching about them not taking it to Yumbo? Yeah. Remember that? Like so so he's 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 sitting there and, and he's like, I thought we were gonna like try to take it to him. And he's talking about the Gren on stage, right? And he's like, We were just I'm paraphrasing here. He's like, We were completely anonymous. We we, we didn't do we didn't do anything, right? And that it seems to be his argument in favor of like, just let me go. Because if if the team isn't gonna do anything, if we're just gonna sit around and follow this other these other guys around, what are we doing here? Why am I not allowed to to go and try myself? But Garrett Thomas gained a lot out of that day. I know the team it wasn't necessarily the team's goal, but it was um but it was I don't think that was a bad day for Ineos. It was maybe a bad day for Tom Pidcock and it was eleven days into his first grand tour and he was in a mood. But, you know, the team knew that that was coming. Cummings was quoted as saying in the uh in the last episode, he's got a feeling that Yumba Visma are gonna do something over the telegraph, and they did. And Thomas was obviously ready. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I, I thought that was more. Uh, we're incapable, or we, we haven't quite got the strength to react in full, to, with our full weight, as opposed to you know actually taking action. Was there anybody in from Ineos in that in that breakaway that Wout ended up in on that stage? I don't think there was. So basically, like like, I mean, I I took that as Pidcock saying, "Why are we never on the front foot?" Like, yes, Garen Thomas ended up having a good day on the Grenon and, and ended up, it actually worked out quite well for him on GC. But that was basically just by him following people, right? They were never on the front foot. They were never, frankly, they were never the Ineos slash Sky that we have seen for much of the last decade. And my my read on that that simple little line was basically like, what are we, like, what are we doing here? Why are we just following this other team around and letting them be the dominant force? And then... Again, that was kind of his argument for if we're if we're just going to follow people around the why you don't need me. You should just let me go up the road and try to win a stage. It's interesting to when you saw it uh, alongside Nielsen Paulus, uh, who sort of seemed to not really be phased by winning and losing that much, even though they tried to. He tried to say how disappointed he was, but like Pidcock sitting on the massage table after the Grenon stage was just like pissed off. And also he's first Tour de France, young pro talking to like his DS like that, who's like in charge of everything. And then you see him go out the next day and as Yumbo like bent the race to their wheel the day before, he then basically does the same thing because he wasn't in the original break, attacked off the front of the bunch, chased them down, then like left them behind on outdoors. Like he basically went and Yumboed the entire field that day. And so I think that was that was the biggest thing, and it showed like it showed how you have to be, just like you have to be so desperate, and it, like the the desire to win has to be so possessive that you can't that it's like a reaction rather than just like, you know, Jonathan Vorster standing by the side of the bus being like, you know, Nilsson looked really good at breakfast this morning, which I thought was the best quote from the whole the whole show <laughs> the whole episode, just like this sort of. You know, licking your finger and sticking it up to put it in the wind to see which way it's blowing. Just like, you know what? He he was really like enjoying his Cheerios. So I I think he could do it today. Whereas Pickock's <laughs> Pickock's probably sitting there just like, just not even chewing his Cheerios, just like swallowing them whole because Eating he's his so chicken angry. And rice. Yeah, exactly. Just just like so so hell bent on winning whatever whatever happens. He was eating gravel, Johnny. That's what they do, yeah. and they're really really hard, isn't it? <laughs> I think like in terms of what you were saying, Kaylee, it, it's this, it's not like 
racing uh, defensively and walking away with the win, is that new for Ineos? Like, that's Sky's whole thing, is that they just control the speed fast enough that no one else can attack and everyone else eventually just gets dropped. And that's how they won so many tours to France's and other grand tours that that's their whole thing. And I think it's really interesting to see Pidcock on the team, actually around the team since they still have this mentality and have never really, they talked about doing away with it at one point, but they never really actually did it when it came, when push came to shove. And so I thought I really liked seeing Pidcock amongst the team environment because he's clearly not a rider who's happy with that kind of racing style. And a lot of that comes down to like he's part of this this big three, right? Of like wow, Matthew Vanderpool and Tom Pidcock. They're mountain bikers, cyclocross racers and road, and they've really changed the game on the roadside. And I think it, for seeing this episode and seeing him on the team, I was even more confused about why the team signed him because he just doesn't seem like he fits at all with the way that they race, their mentality, like anything that they do. And I think a lot of it is that he's British and he's like world champion in multiple disciplines. And so for them, like regardless of whether or not he fits in with the team, that would be a huge deal as a British team to have him as part of their roster. But that I I don't I think that he seeing him talking to his DS was really interesting because it's like that's just him like wanting to change the system of a team that's literally never changed since the day it was formed. Well, and and him making the point that like we're racing the same way, but we're not actually controlling it. Like they're just sitting in 10th to 15th wheel instead of first to seventh, right? And what did what is the point at that point? Like what are they what are they doing? <laughs> that was I, you could just sense the you could sense the frustration. Yeah, for sure. Like you could tell he was super frustrated, and their methods used to work, and they don't anymore. And I think Pidcock is maybe a rider to force them into a new age of bike racing i mean i i will eat my socks before i (laughs) am before i think i'll see ineos race aggressively or with any kind of panache but pidcock can do it did egan bernal race a little bit of panache at the last year's giro uh, the year before i mean it's all their young guys like it's bernal it's teo gegenhart and it's pidcock it's their well like Mm -hmm. i don't know yeah, Teo's still young, sure. Like, yeah. <laughs> this is why I think Pidcock may never be a GC rider, and I, 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 I will stand corrected probably, but I think he gets bored, um, and I think he wants to target. I and I want to see him targeting one day races, maybe the odd week long stage race, but I just can't imagine him sitting at the back of a Sky Train um, and just plugging away in the mountains. He'll want to do what if if he's got the talent in him to do what Pogacar does and goes on a solo rampage on stage nine and takes several minutes then fine but I'm not sure Ineos is where he's going to do that but this is <laughs> we're maybe moving away from the episode now but still yeah he's he, he's an exciting rider it's this this is the stuff that underpins this entire episode though is, is this true. context that I don't think that necessarily fully comes across and, and the, the history of these riders and the history of that team right because the other thing that was really interesting to me is that, that they paint Garrett Thomas in this very positive light like he is absolutely a protagonist of this he, he is 
you're definitely supposed to be rooting for Garen Thomas. You're supposed to be rooting for him as he, as he fights against age and time, as he <laughs> kind of fights for his position within the team, as all these other things. Uh, and, and if you know the sort of the history and the context of this team, like, yes, lots of people are fans of Garen Thomas. Yes, I think he's one of the most sort of amicable people that we deal with as media. He gives a great interview. I think he's genuinely a, 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 he's a pretty nice guy. But man, is he a boring bike racer, right? Like he is he in this tour in particular, you see it like the the way that he gets this podium is by being incredibly consistent and just following wheels forever, right? And it's the way that this team has operated for a decade. And that kind of runs counter to him being this like positive you know, this protagonist that we're supposed to be rooting for. And yes, this is, I should say, this is probably a somewhat sort of like non-British perspective. I think that if you were a Brit watching Team Sky dominate in 2014, 2015, you may view this slightly differently. But yeah, those two things are are difficult for me to square in my head. This sort of like this guy that, that this show is trying to get me to root for. And the fact that I don't think I've ever seen him like attack anybody before 800 meters to go in a single Tour de France ever. Imagine if they'd done a Netflix series back in the Team Sky tour years. Like, that would just not work, right? How do you, like, build any sort of storyline over eight episodes when it's just, like, Chris Froome's got four minutes on Naira Quintana? You know, there's and Aaron's no, elbows. Yeah, you're just... You're, like, focusing on Jean-Christophe Perraud's, like, b- battle and desire for third. Or, Tommy Vauclair's tongue. Actually, that would have been pretty good, yeah. But, like, yeah, you know. If you have no idea what we're talking about, if if you're brand new to the Tour de France, just Google <laughs> Thomas Vokler, V-O-E-C-K-L-E-R, tongue, and you're welcome. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> maybe get a, yeah, maybe get a GIF. Like, yeah, I think you probably need a GIF to, like, truly... Yeah. There's probably GIFs out there. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> That's sideways. I think the problem is, is that when you when it splits into episodes like this, that you when you're focusing on a guy who's not necessarily supposed to be the protagonist, then it's it's hard to get that excited about it. But like when the race is going on and you have you have the the real protagonist like Vingo and Pagacha and Pagacha who's like got more personality than a lot of the others, then it's it's much better and more satisfying to have Thomas playing his his like supporting act. And his like side quest of defeating age and doubters, um, but it's quite, it's kind of hard to get excited about him. I don't know. Do you, do you want to talk about the like him on the ma- like them all just like the massage just suddenly being int- introduced into a thing that happens? Because that's surely going to be weird for people. Just suddenly, <laughs> there's just leg legs and butts everywhere, and while well, also having these very serious conversation. We talked a little bit about that last when we were when you were out, Johnny. okay? Uh, but we didn't go. I mean, we kind of explained why they're doing massages, right? It's just sort of ostensibly aid recovery, but also probably just sort of like relax and drop cortisol levels or something like that. Uh, yeah, the. I mean, it's. I'm actually surprised it took this long to have this much massage. Mm. In, because if you were going to ask me, like, where are they going to get these interviews? Like, what time yeah. are they going to get? Th- that's when you get them, right? Yeah. Back in the good old days, like prior to the prior to my career as a cycling journalist, by probably uh, at least half a decade, or, or if not more. But I have heard tale. Uh, if you had a good relationship with a rider, a good relationship with a team, like that's when a reporter could actually get potentially get a one-on-one in the middle of Tour de France. You would get invited up, 
you know, this, okay, I've got a massage for half an hour at this time, which means I'm not eating. I'm not with my teammates. I'm solo with a, with a swanier. That's when you can come interview me. That used to happen. And so my assumption was that that's when Netflix would be granted access. And I'm, I'm like I said, I'm actually kind of surprised it took this long to, to we to have get. seen Ben O'Connor sulk on the table and Walt Van Aert be told off. True. It's not the first one, but no. this was a massage heavy episode. That's what I'm saying. It was. Yeah. Yeah. In, in some ways, it's kind of good that it's keeping that tradition alive because otherwise it threatened to just disappear completely, right? You just It would just disappear off into sort of folklore. I mean, these days, post-COVID, post uh, although we're going to be back to COVID protocols this summer, that would never in a million years happen, right? But yeah, used to be. Tom's usually FaceTimes me when he's on the massage table. Already. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess the one upside is that we have to see less butts in our day-to-day -day lives on the tour. True. You know, everyone's always dressed. <laughs> Mostly, yeah. So on the other side of, of Ineos, we have the little team again. We have EF. We have Nielsen Palace, who, who became sort of like the potential savior of this team uh, in the way that it was framed. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about that framing and the relegation stuff in a second. But it's worth diving into into palace a little bit further uh he's interesting he's an interesting character and he's also one who you know he'll like he'll probably win a tour stage someday right so i do think that that focusing on him was purposeful maybe even in the long term uh and he kind of acts as a good balance against any in this particular stage right yeah and the one of the biggest sort of storylines around him is he's become more known as, as a pro rider is the fact that he's got Native American heritage. And so that was basically at the tour when a new rider pops up and there's like an interesting part to to who they are, the, the media descends and that's the only story for like two days is everyone interviewing him, asking him the same questions. Um, but he spoke, he spoke, you know, really, really well about what, what that means for sort of Native American representation on a big sporting stage. I was surprised it didn't at least get a mention. And I think, yeah. I actually do think that if, and this kind of comes back to the sort of the, the Frenchification of this thing, right? And the fact that it came yeah. from a very French perspective is I don't think the the French perspective necessarily really cares. If you made this for an American audience, you would absolutely mention that. Oh, that yeah. There's no question in my mind that you would absolutely mention the fact that this was, this guy was the first, the first, you know, person of native american heritage to to reach that level in professional cycling ever uh so i did i do think it was a bit a bit odd that he was that it wasn't at least like mentioned in passing you know yeah i i also enjoyed when he was showing us into his apartment he's like oh you know there's there's still a lot to be done here and it was literally like he'd moved in five minutes ago because there was like one chair like if his if his girlfriend wasn't wasn't there with him then it would literally be in a camping chair and a tv like a a guy in his 20s apartment but at least like there was some piece of furniture i just i really like because you never get to see like because on instagram obviously no one takes pictures of like their real lives so especially for us who follow a lot of these riders closely, like when we saw like Wout Van Aert's kitchen, like it actually is, it can be really, reve not revealing, but it's just like a, a moment of true, like you see what they're, what them and their lives are like. Yeah, what have they chosen to have up on the wall and how do they, you know? <laughs> yeah, look like what, a nice place though and a good view. Very nice view. He's Very doing nice okay. View. A little bit of insider though on that is that he like, li they literally just moved to Nice. Yeah, there we go. Which would make like, sense. Well, like just now. <laughs> you no, mean before like, the Tour de France before, last year? 
Well, before they filmed for that episode. Uh, like, I think uh, okay. they literally moved the week before. It would have been, it would have been like a week after they moved it to their place. That is stress. That's stress you don't need, isn't it? It's like, I've just, yeah. you know, moved to a new country, got a house, and now Netflix are coming. <laughs> his girlfriend yeah, some or his, his wife. Um, his wife is actually like very, very stylish. So I imagine that she is like slightly horrified that that's the portrayal of her home on Netflix. <laughs> well, at least it was clearly they'd only just, it was clear they'd only just moved in. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we need for next year. You know, we need to see how how big a kitchen Wat Van Art now has that he won all those stages and everything. <laughs> and then we also need to see how Nielsen Paulus and his wife furnished their house. Like they're the <laughs> they're the narrative threads, like now? the cliffhangers that I'm. <laughs> yeah, what's it look like? How big is his TV? <laughs> returning to the bike racing. Returning to the bike <laughs> racing. So the the other thread sort of running underneath the whole EF stuff. Uh, and this was mentioned a couple different times, is relegation. And we should say that relegation is a relatively new thing in professional cycling, but it was a big deal, particularly last season. Anybody who follows, like, European soccer or or British soccer uh, football will understand roughly what that means, right? Like, the, the bottom teams get kicked out of the, the top league and the, some of the bottom, the, the, the top teams from the lower leagues get moved up. We had sort of a version of that in cycling last year and i do think that when when jonathan botters is kind of like playing up the you know if we don't win some stages we're going to lose all our sponsors that is the only sort of semi-realistic tie to that perhaps happening is basically if ef was sort of low enough on the standings that if they had a terrible tour like if they didn't get at any points at the whole tour they might have been relegated and that genuinely could have presented a real problem for that team. And I I personally don't think that EF would give up on them. They'd probably still get into the races that they want to go to. They'd probably still go to the Tour de France. But it would certainly, it, it creates a lot of problems for a team if you get booted out of the World Tour because the World Tour guarantees access to the Tour de France. And a lot of the contracts that they have written with sponsors are basically, if you don't have access to the Tour, guaranteed access to the Tour, then this, this sponsor deal is null and void right so there is sort of some some genuine jeopardy in that relegation discussion i still think it was sort of pretty dramatically played up uh but there's something there there's something there all right so to wrap up today's today's episode what was uh what was missing from this what what context was unprovided the only other thing I can think of is when we saw this, finally saw the snippet of Magnus Court and EF celebrating his stage win. You know, it's customary for every victory, I guess, that the evening in in the hotel, the team will like pop a bottle of champagne, like everyone have a glass. You know, it's sort of the release of all the the pent up like nervousness and like, are we gonna, you know, are we gonna achieve our goals? We're we gonna win a stage, but we saw you know, Magnus Court nearly been like thrown through the ceiling and we saw lots of bottles like dotted around and they're obviously having a good time and well-deserved. But what was happening on the ground at that time is the next day, Ian Trelaw, who you heard on the on the previous episodes, he wrote about this and was got a photo of the sort of recycling bins outside the EF or like the a photo of the celebrations and wrote an article counting how many bottles and like saying what a big party they'd had. And he got so told off by the team um, about this and was like the, the grudge was held against him for days. Uh, that we, we should we should mention that this was this was done in like in a lighthearted like 
They yeah, had a great yeah. time. Ian's not, he, a, he Ian's not the party police, yeah. Yeah, no, he wasn't party policing. He wasn't he wasn't shaming them for drinking champagne. It was like it was a positive, but I think maybe not taken super well up the chain there a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. I just that's a fun little anecdote that, you know, now millions of people have seen how much they, they like to party. <laughs> and then we got to see it after the end of the tour when we went to their party and we saw On the boat. <laughs> we saw which which riders really enjoy partying. <laughs> Stories that unfortunately must remain on the boat. Things that they will stay chained. Yes. Yep. All right. I think that's it for episode five. Things are heating up. We've got more and more characters coming into this thing. And up next, episode six Plan B. Plan B. When their leader drops out, Alpacin de Kooning hedges their bets with Jasper Disaster Philipson. <laughs> Will he live up to his nickname or redeem himself? <laughs> We're going to get into this episode next time, but man, I learned some things that I really like yep. about Jasper Philipson. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? Who knew he's just the biggest shit show um, on the world tour? Uh, I really, I really appreciated that. All right, we'll get into it next time on the Unchained Binge Podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. Kaylee Fretz from Escape Collective here. If you've landed on this podcast because you just watched Unchained on Netflix and you want to dive headfirst into the Tour de France and pro bike racing, I have some great news for you. The crew behind this podcast cover pro cycling in depth 365 days a year over at escapecollective.com. We're member funded, meaning listeners and readers support what we do. So if you love this pod, head over to escapecollective.com slash join to sign up. Get all kinds of extra stuff. You get past the paywall. You get the best bike content anywhere. Thanks.